Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About by Kangaroo Minds. I'm Vedika and today we have with us Hiba Siddiqui. Hiba has been passionate about psychology from ever since she was a young girl. And her journey began in interpreting and understanding human behavior. She attained her bachelor's as well as her master's in psychology from the University of Delhi and the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, respectively. Her primary years in training and education landed her with her first job in a healthcare setup. And it is here where she developed her interest in working in the space of cancer care and mental well-being. Following this, she pursued a professional certificate in psycho-oncology from the University College Dublin in Ireland. Hiba currently works as a senior psycho-oncologist at the Max Institute of Cancer Care, part of the Max Healthcare Group in Delhi NCR. And she's also currently pursuing her PhD from IIT Hyderabad. With an experience of over 10 years in this space, Hiba's interests lie in healthcare and medical psychology. Before we begin our conversation today with Hiba, which will center around supporting and coping with the cancer diagnosis from the perspective of a caregiver, we'd like to put out a trigger warning for our audiences. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, we urge you to take a step back and look after yourself. Should you need any additional support resources, you can also find them on our website. And now without taking up more time, let's hear more from Hiba. Hiba, welcome to the episode. It's so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Vedika. It's honestly an honor and I'd love to be part of, you know, these kind of groups. You're doing such great work. So really happy to be here. Thank you. No, thank you, Hiba. I know, you know, that the work that you do is something which is so important, especially when we look at it from, you know, a mental health perspective, but also more specifically from a cancer care perspective. And, you know, we'll mm-hmm. get into that more as we, you know, talk about this through our conversation. But, you know, just at the outset, you know, for our audiences, can you define a cancer caregiver? Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, there are many kinds of uh, definitions, obviously. So I'll try to keep it lay and not get into very textbook here. But caregivers, cancer caregivers are mostly people who are involved in working with an individual who are diagnosed with cancer. And they are very central to the person, except they're not paid professionals. They're not paid carers. Mm -hmm. And so that's the difference between a professional caregiver and a caregiver who is, you know, they can be family, they can be friends, they can be central to the person experiencing cancer and its treatment. Right. So those are what we usually define as cancer caregivers or cancer carers. Right. So, you know, Hiba, when we talk about, um, you know, cancer and a diagnosis of cancer, we've often Mm -hmm. heard this phrase that, you know, cancer is not something that happens just to an individual. It happens to, you know, an entire family and it's Mm -hmm. almost everybody around them, you know, that goes through Mm -hmm. together. So Mm -hmm. can you throw a little bit of light on, you know, what are the mental health implications and the emotional experiences of caregivers at this time? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when we talk to patients, when I talk to patients, I think a lot of times, you know, like how usually hospitals and healthcare setups are, you go to the patient with a very specific time, a specific frame of mind, and you're just like, how are you, what are your symptoms, etc. But there is this one person, two people, multiple people standing with a patient who are also experiencing all of that through that person, right? So when we look at the reactions at a psychological or a psycho-oncological level, 
we look at it at a multifold level right mm-hmm. we're looking at it in terms of the psychological impact the behavioral impact the social impact and the overall uh, impact on their mental well-being which can be different kinds of things in terms of their spiritual care in terms of their functionality in terms of uh, decision making and their general ability to function so if i break them down if we look at psychological impact primarily it's about the entire concept of identity right in this present moment in the here and now who am i am i a partner am i a friend am i a sibling a child a parent and visa we both the patient as well as the people outside how do i define myself sometimes there is this dichotomy and dissociativeness which comes in with the the interaction and interplay between self and others there are evident mood changes sometimes there are emotional outbursts including on the patient you're irritable you're snappy they're not having their medications you're just like oh god why are you annoying me just get it over with these kind of reactions sometimes you know you're just you're forgetful sometimes your decision making abilities are impacted you forgot to give a medication you're so caught up you don't know how to balance and juggle anymore at a behavioral level sometimes it spills over to again um sometimes reductions in performance physically uh your aversion to going to the hospitals you just like you know this board i don't like it i don't like this road where it goes it reminds me of things which you know i then have to go back get here in the morning go back in the evening my social life is impacted again bringing to a social uh, space where sometimes you're just very away and distant you feel very alone um very evidently isolated right sometimes there's a very evident amount of stigma and labeling that the society holds for cancer diagnosis in general you know there are ways in which people end up pitying you you don't like that sympathizing with you asking the same questions again and again so you'd rather avoid than to just talk about someone who's say not doing well so if every day i ask you how are you how are you how are you your state is not going to change so then as a caregiver i'd rather not pick up the phone not engage with people so sometimes you feel that these are the different kinds of reactions that i often see at my in my work which further lead to maybe fatigue and tiredness in general as well right so you know hiba i think it's interesting that you know you've thrown a lot of light on you know what caregivers go through not just emotionally but behaviorally and also like you know in terms of physical health we've seen it take a toll you know on a caregiver but very rarely when we have conversations about cancer care do we talk about mental health and even mm-hmm. less do we talk about caregiving and you know caregivers and what they go through so you know sure. why do you think it's important to address these issues and you know support caregivers with their mental health i think that would be a question if i talk generically for people it's also the idea to prioritize mental health care right in terms of identifying what it does to you and the stigma that we need to reduce collectively not just for the other person but for myself as well mm-hmm. and this is how the normalization begins that if someone is caring for you irrespective of cancer cancer of course consumes you at a more long term level right it is a longitudinal thing it's chronic in nature so the impact is more long lasting which is why it's important to know that yes the patient has all the studies all the researches all the focus for what happens to the people who are there with them 
who are also the sponges taking in so much from them. It's also that. And that's why it's important to know why caregivers are hold a very integral part in their life. If they collapse, if they fall, um, you know, they, they shake or they, they're fragile, they may not be able to take care of someone who really needs their care and who benefits from that care. That's why it's important to never ignore them. Right. And, you know, just to build a little bit on what you just mentioned about, you know, the role that a caregiver plays, you know, in your experience, and if you could throw a little bit more light and, you know, like, how important is the role of that caregiver when it comes to, you know, supporting treatment, recovery, as well as the mental health of the patient themselves? Yeah. Well, um, I think the role that a family caregiver or, or you know, any caregiver plays is at multiple levels, right? There are, see, when we are part of a family or even very close friendships and relationships, there are certain roles and responsibilities, even duties for that matter, that are divided. So if, say, someone is, everyone can't do everything equally, you can mix and match. So if someone is taking care of a particular space, the other is taking care of B. Now, when the person falls ill or, you know, cannot meet up to those expectations, both A and B fall into one person, fall onto one person. And the roles and responsibilities suddenly take a shift. Now, whether you're equipped to do so or not, you have to run the household. You have to run it emotionally, financially, physically, basic needs, you know, cooking, cleaning, eating, food, organizing, things like that come in. Those take a hit. And many times in my experience, I notice how they suddenly shift expectations that are there from both the patient or the individual who is diagnosed with cancer or experiencing firsthand and also the family, both during, at the time of diagnosis, during treatment and in their survivorship phase. That's important to note that once you're recovered, once you're out of that immediate treatment, survivorship care for caregivers and patients is equally important, right? Um, and so that might lead to conflicts, that might lead to resistances, where uh, this is not what I was expecting. Sometimes there are gaps in not being able to understand what my needs are. A lot of your needs are unmet. So caregivers are also going through these roles. Many times they go through a lot of guilt and self-blame, whether it's for not getting the person for checkup on time or wanting to enjoy or go to a party that they really can't or miss eating out something because the patient can't eat. Uh, small joys, little joys of life, or to feel like, oh, I'm not able to manage work life, um, you know, the way I should. And that's adding burden. But the fact that I'm tired, that also induces guilt. That that's my partner, that's my parent, that's my child. Why am I getting so annoyed caring for them? So all of these changes mentally, physically, emotionally can occur on the caregiver as well. And of course, financially um, is another very integral aspect. Right. That and adds on to the fears and anxieties. Yeah. Right. No, I think it's interesting, you know, that you spoke about, uh, you know, caregiver burden and sort of that burnout, but also how often that also leads to feelings of guilt, right? Because often you can't express that frustration that you're feeling yeah. going through. Because again, with caregiving, a lot of times there is this assumption that, you know, you have to be a caregiver, you know, because, oh, they're your relative. If you won't do it, who's going to do it? 
And I think that also adds to the whole emotional experience, which, you know, as you said, caregivers go through. But mm. coming to the aspect of burnout, because you spoke about it, you know, mm. how do you sort of define that burnout? And, you know, what are some signs of burnout in caregivers? Yeah, so caregiver burden and fatigue is a very real concept. It's a state in which mentally, physically, socially, many times, like I said, financially, you are extremely stressed. There might be very evident signs of clinical depressiveness and clinical anxiety, and you're not able to balance or function, right? So there's very evident dysfunctionality. Uh, many times what caregiver burden and fatigue does to your roles, etc., is that it sometimes have confusion in roles, right? Sometimes it creates unrealistic expectations that I as a caregiver might have on me, as well as the person diagnosed with cancer throwing onto the caregiver as well. In terms of expectations, which can be very, very <clears throat> unrealistic to sort of attain. Now, those kind of pressures often create helplessness, lack of control, that I may not be able to manage and I feel very flustered and I feel very, very burdened that I can't, I can't sort of, it feels like, you know, literally counting one hair at a time, that kind of a thing. And of course, sometimes there are unreasonable demands that they often put on themselves that I better be the best caregiver. I better be providing every single thing to this person because their pain is so much bigger than mine or their worries, et cetera, are so much bigger than mine. Those are also unreasonable, irrational demands and burdens that you end up putting on yourself. So some of the symptoms can include very irritable behaviors, disturbed sleep, disturbed appetites. It could be less or more. Uh, sometimes you might have unnecessary, unexpected crying spells. Uh, you might have something called um, the bloodiness in the mind. So you're not able to focus, you're very distracted, um, you know, you're very isolated, you might be very withdrawn. These are some of the common symptoms that we see. And, you know, Hiva, when it comes to, you know, caregiving, as you said, this is not a paid profession. We don't look at it as one. Mm. So very often caregivers are balancing, as you said, multiple roles in their lives. You know, they're also holding a job and running the household as well as looking after their loved ones, you know, be it a family member, or as you said, a friend. So mm -hmm. how can they balance these acts and, you know, you know, just so that they can cope better with the demands of caregiving mm -hmm. while also looking after themselves, you know, and through the whole process? Right, right. I think, um, you know, there are many ways, right? So I think I'm not going to dive into so much of that, but let me look at things that maybe we can talk about more at a practical level that they can do. So I talked about lack of control and helplessness that comes in, right? I think it's important for the person to also know that there are uncertainties that come in at many, you know, pits and stops. There are hurdles which are very unpredicted. Sometimes they're crisis-like, sometimes they're anticipated. So it's important for yourself to prepare for the life transition. That maybe this experience might be changing or maybe impacting the relationship in a certain way, maybe impacting your own journey as an individual, your own evolution. And it doesn't have to be for the bad or for the worse. So one is to prepare for those transitions. The other is to look at a problem-solving attitude. 
I know I can't control the disease. I can't control the trajectory and the nature with which it might be coming onto my person, my family, and you know all of us together. So what I can do is I can look at the best possible treatment solution. I can have my insurances sorted. I can have my wills sorted. Sorted, sorry. Um, I can focus on what matters in the here and now. Can I spend time? What is the level of functionality? Both my my you know patient or my I'm sorry I'm constantly using the patient word, but my family member can do. What can I do? Can that be helped? Can I withdraw a little? I may not be wanting or required to be involved to the same level that I had to on day one. So maybe I can start weaning off to give myself more time. The other thing is that it's important to heal your relationship. There can be a lot of distance that can come in. There can be a lot of communication gaps that can come in. There can be a lot of resentments, you know, that I'm doing so much for you, but all I hear is this irritability, snappiness. Your outbursts are always on me. Why do I not get a better side of you? So those changes or those things need to be constantly addressed, right? And of course, it's important to you know. I often tell a lot of people in our team, we we quite you know we joke a lot, we we laugh a lot, and I think those are in that very heavy loaded day of work. I think those are moments which we really enjoy because it's important to laugh. It's important to lighten the mood a little. You're already feeling so morose and so heavy. Uh, just to go out with your friends, you know, have a chat which is not cancer. Have a chat or look at, you know, if you're surfing the internet, you're not looking at cancer symptoms, what to do, what not to do. Look at like funny videos, you know, watch, uh, you know, watch stand-up comedy or watch a fun light show, comfort shows, things like that. And of course, you know, very important to know that if you've already dealt with the worst, you have the resilience. Nobody tells us how much resilience we have until we are experiencing it or a crisis that we have to deal with. We survived COVID. Right, none of us knew what a pandemic looks like, what it entails mentally, physically, but we all are survivors. So the resilience we all have, little did we know that we did, or the fact that you know when you are kind or caring and nurturing to the person who's diagnosed, why don't you take a U-turn and look, you know, at an inward level mm-hmm. to start with being kind to yourself. Rather than you know feeling that hypocrisy that I need to only be nurturing to the other person, and of course if none of these work, then please reach out to for professional help. A psycho oncologist or a trained psychologist working in the health and medical field will be able to help with that. So I guess these are some of the tips that work. I think for me as a person, I've heard from families um, which I feel are practical. And uh, it's important to also build your support systems. You know, trust someone you can talk to, without feeling judged. A friend, a support group, you know, those really, really go a long way. You know, you've shared some really practical self-care tips as well for caregivers. But you know, talking more specifically about psychoanalogy and the role of a psychoanalogist. Because not too many people would even be aware, you know, unfortunately, that this kind of support exists. So, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the role that a psycho oncologist can sort of play in supporting both patients as well as their caregivers through the mm-hmm. entire process? Sure, I think so. Psycho oncology is definitely a new field in India, 
it's obviously something that's practiced and integrated in holistic cancer care you know in the western countries um well before it's now you know upcoming and a lot of people are taking up it it so i'm you know you're trained and have a background in psychology and then you're super specialized with a focus in psych in cancer care uh so it merges and creates that bridge between the physical and the mental aspects of cancer care mm-hmm. and uh, again you know if it's like like i work with a larger integrated oncology unit so we look at mental and physical care with a similar and equal uh priority you know it is normalized from the day one by every oncologist every support staff that there is someone who will be looking after you or will you know at some point visit and and uh see you during this period of um care that you might need during the treatment whether it's a treatment oriented impact it's an organic impact or it's a psychosocial uh impact on the mental health you know if it dips or imbalances itself when you're here to deal with that's where my role comes in that in your healing journey the psycho oncologist comes in to look after the mental health of the person as well as the caregiver right so you know heba also as a caregiver have you like you know would you say that there are some differences in the way you know you would care for you know let's say a child or a younger adult with cancer versus you know an elderly person who's mm-hmm. got cancer i will vedika because i feel like the the fears and the anxieties as common as they are uh and i'll actually tell you some commonalities that exist you know it's coming in my head i think that whether it's a child or an adult or young adult or someone who's elderly it's important to know that there are sensitivities that will be modulated right how you are dealing with the person mm-hmm. but the commonality comes in where there is trust there are questions around knowledge sharing how much to share how much to protect um you know the control that comes in or is given to the person whether it's a child or an adult or an elderly person um the fears that you feel in terms of your relationship with them right and the responsibilities that you are required to perform physically emotionally financially mentally so if it's a child and an elderly person the dynamic shift with the adult sometimes you treat them more at an equal sharing of responsibility and knowledge but it can't be generalized i think my work with them is very very specific to the family and the person it's very very tailor made so yes my approaches many times differ because a parent fearing the loss of a child a pa- parent fearing the impact of the treatment can be very different than someone looking at dealing with an elderly patient of theirs you know with a certain sense of oh they're coming with a certain comorbidity or oh, it might be age related whereas a small kid of 1 year old or 2 years the parents sometimes don't even know how to make sense of what just happened right the, these illnesses or this diagnosis is societally made you know expected to be with people who are older who are of a certain age group not the younger ones so you're also dealing with that you know um dichotomy of sort with them right and you know as you mentioned with all the sort of you know the societal implications of having cancer and the mm-hmm. almost the equating of cancer to death right mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. times with cancer patients you will start seeing that fear of death sort of creeping in and 
you know, they'll have a lot of worries around, you know, are they, you know, are they going to recover? What are they going to go through? So, you know, as a caregiver, how can we support and, you know, help them through those phases? Um, I think the questions around loss and fears around them, rather, uh, they're not completely wrong and irrational because you see statistics and you see movies and, you know, media portrayals of cancer as an illness. We go back to a lot of films that showed it's never a happy ending. So a lot of people come in with those notions and ideas. And I think that they look at grief as a direct aspect of end of life or death. But they may be grieving other things. So grief doesn't only mean that someone has passed on. It can also mean that you are anticipating or dealing with loss of time that you had, the kind of person you were, the the fear of not being able to spend that kind of regular or normal scene routine with this person that you very happily shared six months back, two months back, three years back. Uh, and I think that that is where we also grieve loss of time, loss of what could have been. I don't know if this will go back to normalcy. I don't know and I can't trust that about me. So my faith starts diminishing. That is also what grief does. And I think in that moment, we do often connect a lot of our caregivers to support groups, support systems, other patients who have willingly consented uh, for us to, you know, make them also deal with patients who are surviving and doing thankfully very well physically, medically, emotionally, to be able to share that journey and to help them realize you're not alone in this. You're not the only one who's dealing with it, right? For starters, we often give them individual space. I give them individual space to have therapy sessions with them if we identify. We keep the treating doctor in place. We keep them informed that I know they're not in your direct line of control, but that is impacting, say, their relationship with your patient. So it's important to see them. We see them as the duo or the dyad, right? We see them maybe sometimes as a trio. So those are the those are the ways where we give the caregivers their own space to also express, to have that cathartic experience and you know share and then work therapeutically with them, with them accordingly. You know, Hiva, you touched upon grief, and before we get into you know more around you know end of life grief. But let's talk about a little bit about, you know, if you can throw some light on anticipatory grief. Is mm-hmm. that something we don't talk about enough again, you know, and we don't even often recognize anticipatory grief. So, you know, mm-hmm. what does anticipatory grief sort of, you know, look like for a caregiver? You know, how can they look after themselves through that time? Again, I think I'll overlap some of the things that I said, uh, so I won't repeat them. But anticipatory grief is also the uncertainty of the future of the person that I'm related to or I'm friends with. Now, will they die? I think these are questions we don't ask, right? I think we don't have conversations around death. They're very uncomfortable topics. And many times the caregivers fear being alone. That once my family member or my relative or my friend goes, if they do, what will happen to me because I'm the one left behind. And there is this very, you know, childlike uh, space of selfishness that comes in that uh, I'm looking out for myself. What's going to happen after that person? What's going to happen to me? And I feel like a lot of the anticipatory grief stems from that fear. 
um we end up not normalizing talking about death and loss we don't normalize talking about the idea of grief because societally we're so pressured to think positive think through this be happy be positive and you know the toxic positivity that comes in we consider it a very negative thinking process which it isn't it's very healthy to talk about it it is a thing it is very real and so we need to have this conversation um with people and again hold hold spaces which can ease these conversations in the process of that journey as well i think you're very right you know when it comes to having these conversations about um death and loss and grief and you know even cancer and you know even the conversation mm. we're having today a lot of times people will say that you know no you're being very negative you know it's that mm. toxic positivity which you mentioned that no mm. don't talk about it you know you're but it's a very real part of the entire journey of you know being a cancer caregiver or you know mm-hmm. just seeing sort of you know your loved ones struggle and you're probably right that you know a lot of it comes from that fear of you know what's going to happen to me because again that whole dichotomy of your sense of self essentially mm-hmm. it's now become that i'm a caregiver mm-hmm. so what happens to me after they go you know who am i what am i left with what is my identity minus being a caregiver because you know you've actively mm-hmm. been that role for such a long time especially when when yeah. it comes to supporting someone with cancer but yeah. besides survivorship now when we start moving toward you know there are going to be people who won't you know treatment isn't going to help them or that the very last stage of you know st- um, their lives so mm-hmm. in that time you know how can we support a caregiver or you know just sort of normalize that sense of loss that comes mm-hmm. even post your loved one moving on yeah and i think that's a very heavy responsibility for people that they should really start embracing and you know taking accountability for there's a very um, you know interesting grief therapist his name is david kessler and he basically talked about the stages of grief he added with them and said what what after the last stage how do you give what is he basically gave the concept of meaning beyond grief so he often said that you know the society expects us to grieve in a certain way and doesn't expect you to move on right and there were conversations around comparison i'm more sad than you my grief is bigger than yours my loss was worse because you know i suffered for 6 months but you suffered only for one month i think we need to as a society collectively stop doing that you're not getting a bravery award the resilience cannot be quantified and compared everyone's way of dealing handling grief handling people is very different so if someone feels like they're losing on social gatherings and outings versus someone who says but i'm much more worried about my parent who's about to die they both can still be the same no judgment passed so as a society we need to not put our problems forward by in, in the attempt to making them feel lighter that your problems are not as bad look at mine they're so bad just give them the space to talk don't don't try to hog you know their moment of expression don't judge don't don't tell them you know statements like time will heal be positive have faith you know you should think positive the person will heal that's adding on to the burden 
to the caregivers because they feel guilty for not thinking positive then you know when they're very evidently seeing something which is realistically not going to reverse so when someone's going through loss just check in on them you know maybe without asking how is the patient how are you how are you today just say hey dropping in a hi like you know you want to get on a call treat them very regularly like you would have conversations talk about your life sometimes people get very awkward and they feel we're walking on eggshells so i can't discuss my life problems because they're not as bad the comparison also ends up reversing in that situation so you feel very distant that how can i share a happy news maybe they'll actually like it try it check in on them can they take it on how assess how their day is take them out for a cup of coffee bring them bring coffee to them you know maybe just go home and visit them because they can't get out small gestures like this you know like these go a long way and that also shows that you're there but you're not like you know prodding over every day how you're feeling what's your emotions it's not going to change especially if someone's you know towards the end of their life and not really improving unfortunately right and i think you know that's really interesting that you know you also shared some tips for you know how common people around caregivers can sort of you know support caregivers and you know it's not about all the time trying to induce positivity but mm-hmm. also sometimes being very real about the situation acknowledging it for what it is validating mm-hmm. what they're experiencing to some mm-hmm. people might go through you know very different feelings as you said you know some days will be sort of a sadness that anticipation mm-hmm. there'll also be feelings of guilt or you know just anger and helplessness also that i think comes in with being a caregiver sometimes we don't recognize or you know we try to say things like oh you know look they're going to be in a better place or you know all those kinds of remarks also that oh you know at least their pain is going to end but i think as a caregiver we don't realize that that emotional attachment sometimes mm. doesn't see all these feelings you know you mm. cuz you don't want to see your loved one go mm. so it's that striking that balance between you know what is genuine empathy versus you know are you being you know are you adding to that feeling of toxic positivity around the person mm. Mm. to also just you know one more thing that to allow the feelings of vulnerability irrespective of you know the gender that you identify with i think it's important to know do to just be okay with knowing that it's okay to ask for help right it's okay to have a bad day it's okay to just you know be very hopeless today those are also emotions which exist and they can all coexist i can have a very positive day today and a very very hopeless day tomorrow but that's also what makes me human and i need to humanize rather than demonize these you know uh, these emotions that may not sit very well with the larger society or the realm of you know the community that i probably exist in sort of a thing and i think you're right you know when it comes to vulnerability not just for caregivers but also sometimes the way you feel about you know the person who's going to go because a lot of times especially if they're elderly you know people will say that you know it's okay they've lived their mm. life and i think yeah. as a caregiver it it's partly that grief about you know what could have been you're not ready to accept that yes mm-hmm. you know they've lived their life but you know does that mean that you're ready to let go i don't think so i think it's going to hurt you know mm-hmm. irrespective of the age of the person going because mm-hmm. obviously you have that emotional attachment to the person and i think you know we need to hold space for those conversations yeah. as well 